Alright students, today let's have lecture 5, day 2 continued, Envy's Art and the Third Cornice of Anger and Free Will. This is Dante's The Divine Comedy. I think this is lecture 22, but don't quote me on that. I'll make sure that it says the right thing in the description on the recording. Alright, what we're starting today with are examples of love. Remember, ever since we got it, so let's recall from last time, we climbed three steps to Purgatory Proper's gate, up those three steps, one was white marble, one was dark purple, one was blood red. At the top of those steps, we saw an angel. His face was too bright for us to look at, but he had two keys, keys given to him by the first pope. The pope's name was St. Peter. Those keys were golden and silver, like the sun and the moon, representing power, like what the sun gives to the earth in order for life to exist, and a reflection, like what the moon does to the light of the sun so that we can see at night, and very similar to what we do at night reflect on our days. In any case, we made it then into the first of the seven cornices of purgatory, the, the um, cornice or terrace of pride. We saw their sinners who had their backs being broken by the rocks they stood on in order to look down on people, to look scornfully on people, to disdain people around them during their lives. We saw three examples of the virtue which expiates pride. That was humility. Recall also the first example was one of Mary, Mary at the Annunciation receiving uh, the idea in her head that she would bear a god from herself, very similar to the Greco-Roman religion, and yet different, and that she receives this news very humbly, very humbly, similar in some ways to the Hercules story. Um, in any case, in any case, you recall that Mary will be the first example of a virtuous person in the art that expiates, or the art that is part of the expiation of sin in the coming terrace. So, we then saw um, a few people who were proud of their family, proud of their uh, art. We saw Odorisi, we saw Umberto, we saw also Provenzan Salvani. And then we saw 13 examples of the vice of pride, including Briarius and Lucifer. We then moved on with the help of an angel. After having one of our P's erased from our head, recall also that Dante had seven P's inscribed on his head, like the word, uh, which is... Uh, I told you those P's could either be Pacati or Piagi or Pinac. Uh, uh, all of those are Pacati means sins. Um, Piage, which is from the Latin word plagi, which, which is where we get the word plague from. Um, and don't worry about your phone down there. It's obvious that it fell. In any case, um, and then, of course, Pinai is where we get the word penalty from. One of these P's will disappear at the end of each cornice after Dante sees other people working and sees art of the expiating virtue as well as of the sin or, excuse me, vice to be expiated. So we made it into envy and to the second cornice. And in that second cornice, one of the envious that we were going to meet, we'll meet two more today, was named Sapia. And she made a play on words on her name. Even though her name is Sapia, like the Latin word sapiens, which means wisdom, like the Italian word sapio, which means knowledge, she says she, her name was Sapia, but she was not wise. She enviously, uh, and just to let you know, envy is when you wish for harm to happen to others, and similar to pride in that you wish to be above others for some reason, though if you are proud, you may not wish harm to others. You may simply wish to be better than others, whereas when you are envious, you do wish for something uh, bad to happen to them. And in any case, her nephew, Provenzon Salvani, who we see amongst the proud penitents, was a man killed in battle, and she was very happy about that. And in fact, it was her own people who were losing that battle, and she was happy to see it. 
And as I told you, there's a German word that's very similar to this concept, which means schadenfreude, or which is schadenfreude, which means uh, joy in suffering. So, let's talk about the expiating examples of the, uh, the expiating virtue of this second cornice. So, the second cornice focuses on envy. Envy from the Latin, invidia. Invidia means not to see. And so remember what the punishment is here. These sinners, because they could not see in life, are now crouched together near the ledge. Remember there, we're going up the right, so the art and things that we can see, or at least the proud art would be on the left. The ledge uh, off which we can fall is on the right. They're all huddled together. Huddled together because they're blind. Why are they blind? Iron wire is shutting their eyes. Uh, they are blind in a similar but different way from how those in the third cornice of the angry will be blind uh, because of acrid black smoke. We'll actually see that quote today. And so, this first example, obviously if they're blind, how are they going to see it? Can it be visual art? No. It has to be poetic art. It has to be something musical. It has to be said. And so they hear a voice call out, Venum non habens, which is Latin, which means wine, not they have. They have not wine. Okay, well, what's that mean? Well, of course, as this is the first example of an expiating virtuous piece of art, the virtue here, which is not a true virtue, not a cardinal virtue, nor a theological virtue, is humility. Or, excuse me, excuse me, oh, I'm totally wrong here. I'm saying the wrong thing. The virtue here is one of the theological virtues. It is, of course, the virtue of love or charity. So the opposite of to be envious and to want what others have and to want bad things to happen to them is to give things to other people that you have. And so this example is from a story when Mary and Jesus went to a wedding. They were at a wedding in a place called Cana. And at that wedding, there was no wine. And without wine, how can you have a party? Well, these people just had six baskets of water. Jesus goes over, does his miracle magic, and makes those, wa those water baskets into wine baskets. And then all of a sudden, he has given something to these people that they did not have. He has showed charity to these people. And supposedly, to be charitable, and this is sort of an anagogical way of looking at this situation, is a way to cure your envy. So... Rather than getting the thing that you think you want, the best thing one can do to expiate envy is to give something that one actually does have to someone else. Which I think is a very radical way of looking at this. When one shares, allegorical interpretation, intangible things, like love, it increases the total quantity of that which is shared, rather than decreasing for one and increasing for another. So if I spread wisdom to you, as I do every time I lecture, then that increases the amount of wisdom that exists, rather than taking my wisdom and then giving it to you, which would be sort of a dubious investment, don't you agree? Yes, in any case, the second example, not marry now, I am Orestes, is yo, and Orestes, now, you recall him from last year, you heard about him for the first time in the lectures leading up to the Odyssey, he of course was a parallel to Telemachus, though whereas Telemachus had very much stayed a boy, until his early 20s, Orestes had very much become a man. Recall that Orestes was the son of Agamemnon. Agamemnon was the leader of the Achaean armies. Agamemnon, when he returned home, was killed treacherously by his wife Clytemestra and her then-lover, Agisthus, who was the cousin of Agamemnon and also raised as Agamemnon's brother. And so they killed Agamemnon. Orestes then fled and grew up uh, with a man named Pylades. That was sort of like his Patroclus. Orestes then comes back, and this is figured in all three of the major playwrights from Greeks, uh, from Athens' um, works, Euripides, Sophocles, and Aeschylus. But uh, the work that is probably most famous is The Libation Bearers by, uh, by 
Oh, oh, am I forgetting by Aeschylus, Sophocles? Uh, no, no, Aeschylus, there we go, because of Agamemnon. In any case, when Orestes comes back home where his mother and his uh, stepfather, sort of like Hamlet, is ruling, he takes vengeance on them. But in so taking vengeance, he has killed both his mother and the queen, even though he has avenged the death of the former king. And so he's held, uh, there's a trial held for him, and depending on which uh, playwright you read, it goes somewhat differently. He does get off in the Aeschylus, Eumenides, uh, 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 which is the third part of that trilogy, after Lie, Bation Bearers, after um, the Agamemnon. In any case, in this particular story, he gets convicted, and he is going to die. But the convictor does not know who he actually is. So his friend Pylades tries to take his place and say, I am Orestes, very similar to... The, uh, the Roman gladiatorial slave Spartacus, if you've ever seen that movie, where all the slaves at the end say, I am Spartacus, who's Spartacus? I am Spartacus. They all stand up and they say, you're going to kill Spartacus, you're going to have to kill all of us. Well, it's a similar idea here. Uh, Pilates says, I am Orestes. Orestes, knowing that his friend is so noble, doesn't want him to die. He says, I am Orestes. And so the idea is that they were both willing to give their lives for each other rather than envying the other for the fact that he gets to live while the other dies which is, I, I think, very powerful, a very powerful idea here. In any case, the third example, we hear said, love those who despitefully use you. That means love those who harm you. Well, this is taken from a very, very, very famous speech given by Jesus in the New Testament um, across several of the different Gospels. I have a quote here from Matthew. It is called the Sermon on the Mount. He literally climbs a mountain, and from a place of higher perspective, uh, gives the Beatitudes, blessed are the, blessed are the, blessed are the, and then tells all a, bunch of, a whole bunch of allegories and stories. In this particular one, love your enemies. Very odd, especially if we think about Troy, the Achaeans, everything we've been studying. Love your enemies, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them that persecute and calumniate you. Well, that's quite the opposite of what we would have expected, especially looking at the history of Greece and Rome. Your enemies are the people that you kill and disparage and put in the ground and take the women and possessions of, if you happen to be an Achaean or a Trojan. In fact, I just taught about the taking and sacking of Troy today, and all sorts of that sort of thing happened. Lots of death, blood, abduction, uh, horrible. Even children dying. Uh, and women being taken, Cassandra by Asselezer. We all remember these stories from last year. In any case, this is opposite advice from what we would have expected. Rather than fight against and destroy your enemies so that you no longer have any, the idea seems to be, if you listen to what your enemies say, they might bequeath to you information you do not have, which could be helpful to you in some way. So you should listen to and appreciate the fact that you have enemies because they will tell things to you that you did not know. And I think that's a very interesting way of turning a negative into a positive. I also think that, uh, in, uh, I suppose this is just uh, sort of conventional wisdom, one way to get rid of an enemy is to make that enemy into a friend. In fact, a very famous quote from House of Cards is, why does there... Why have someone be the loser when both people can be the winners? And I think that's an interesting way of looking at things. In any case, the allegorical interpretation here is those who dislike or hate you may help you to see yourself more clearly. You might have something dislikable or hateful about you, and that might be why they dislike or hate you. They may not simply be prejudiced. They might, but I think it's well worth keeping in mind that perhaps you are not perfect and other people see your imperfections and they share that with you and those who dislike you are more willing to share those imperfections with you and perhaps you could learn something of value from them. And perhaps then, maybe they're kind of like a friend. In any case, it takes some thinking to come to that point. Alright, the envious penitence. We've already met Sapia. She was not wise, uh, even though her name would suggest it. 
here we meet Guido del Duca and Rinieri da Cavoli. We don't need to know that much about them, except for they, like Farinata and uh, the Guelph Cavalcante, happen to be together in the same place. One happens to be a Ghibelline, one happens to be a Guelph, which is very interesting. Because if envy is a problem of seeing and not seeing, and you assume those around you have something that you would like to have, or you would like something bad to happen to them, if the Guelphs and the Ghibellines cohabitate in Florence and in Siena and in various cities, who has anything to be envious of from the other? If the Guelphs exist alongside the Ghibellines, and the Ghibellines along the Guelphs in the same place, it's almost like they have exactly, they find themselves in exactly the same situation. There seems to be no reason why they should be envious. It's almost like this is disparaging the very concept of envy. There's no reason to be envious of anybody because everybody has problems, might be the underlying idea. In any case, Guido, Del Duca, prominent 13th century Ghibelline. Again, these are people from just before uh, Dante's time. Remember, he's a 13th, 14th century figure. He was born in the 13th century, died in the 14th. Well, as usual, he calls various Italian cities terrible places to be. They're full of sins because of the bad choices of the people there. We'll talk a little bit about choice later. Casentino, Arezzo, pizza, full of hogs, curs, wolves. These are all Italian cities. Those are all terms of disparagement. Again, the sins of the people in these cities and the vices of them are leading to these being vicious and sinful places, almost as if they're becoming living hells, as we talked about in the Inferno. Now, this guy, Ranieri da, or da Cavoli, excuse me, was a prominent 13th century Guelph. Know the difference between Guido, who's a Ghibelline, Ranieri, who's a Guelph. Perspective. Like I was saying, if both the Guelphs and Ghibelline, Ghibellines are amongst the envious, did any have reason to be envious of the other? They were in the same place during life. They find themselves in the same place in the afterlife. They don't really seem that different from each other, which is part of the point, I think. With factionalism, perhaps you see people as different from you who are not actually different from you, or you see them as more different from you than they actually are. Hmm. Interesting idea. Interesting idea. In any case, let's see examples of envy. As you recall, the structure of purgatory proper. We will always see art of the expiating sort, the expiating virtue first. Then we meet the penitents. Then we see art of the vice that needs to be expiated. Here is that vice. Here is envy. Here are the results of envy. And so, envy is apparently very close to the heart of man. So close that the second story, essentially, in the Old Testament, after the fall of Adam and Eve, is about Adam and Eve's first two children. Cain is the first child. Abel is the second. And they are the first humans born inside of time, outside of Eden. And so... <clears throat> This was during the time that God still walked amongst man, like when Zeus and Athena were amongst the Achaeans and the Iliad, and Cain and Abel both presented gifts to God. Cain, a farmer, gave fruits of the soil. Many, many people have interpreted this, and there are many ways to interpret it. Some think that perhaps the idea is that farming was no longer in vogue, and that being a shepherd was a more valuable skill. That's what Abel was. He was a shepherd who gave the fat portions from the first of his flock, but if you really look at the language there, and we don't have the Hebrew in front of us, there might be some suggestion that Abel gave his best, the fat portions from the first of his flock. That's the best of the best. Whereas Cain gives the fruits of the soil. It doesn't say he gave the first fruits of his best plants. And so potentially he didn't give his best there. Now, that's only one way to interpret this story. There are a lot of ways to interpret it. But 
His gift displeased God. Is it because it was fruit from the ground? Is it because he didn't put his best into it or give his best? We don't necessarily know that. But we do know that he was very upset with the results. And so Abel pleased God. Cain displeased him as well. Rather than Cain learning from his brother and perhaps putting more effort into his work or changing his line of work, well, he decided to take out that displeasure that God had shown him on his brother. He decided to take his brother out. He kills, he murders his brother. This is one of many, 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 many almost endless images of Cain murdering Abel. And it is the first murder in the Old Testament. It is the first death that was uh, prophesied in the Old Testament or uh, that the snake claimed would not happen. You will not die. Well, here's the first death. Actually, interestingly enough, uh, Cain then gets protected, has a mark put on his head, and ends up having a child or a descendant named Tubal-Cain that invents the first war machines. And uh, so it's almost like once something gets going, it can spin over time out of control. And if you look at the sorts of weapons we had at the time of the Old Testament and uh, about three millennia ago, and at uh, the weapons of the Achaeans, things like rocks and spears, and then you look at, like, say, nuclear weapons that can, you know, take account of the arc of our world. Uh, well, you can see that uh, there is some truth to that, that when we do establish a habit, we get more and more and more and more sophisticated in our execution of it. Yes? I don't know. It doesn't say. But I would imagine something like a rock. Probably something like a rock. He waits till he's alone, goes out to see him. I mean, there's so many ways you could just tell that story and write that story. Hey, bro, come meet me out here. Okay, rock to the head, something like that. But, uh, and very famously, God comes back and says, where's your brother Abel? And that's when Cain says, and you've probably heard this on the TV show at some point, am I my brother's keeper? And that's when he gets punished. And his punishment is actually to live rather than to die. Which I think is very interesting if you think about the fact that when people kill people these days, we have two major uh, punishments. Uh, for, uh, for murder, murder one. Uh, one is execution, but one is also life in prison. You have to live with it forever. And, well, uh, there you go. Okay, we have two examples of envy, only two. The second one here is Greco-Roman, after the first one having been Old Testament. And remember, Greco-Roman means Greek and Roman tradition. It means the mythology that we talked about from Virgil and Homer last year. Uh, and, and, you know, uh, a few bits more. Now, what we hear here is, I am a Glauros who was made stone, or who became stone. Well, a Glauros, and I'm basically just going to tell you what it says here, was a daughter of the Athenian ruler Cecrops, according to Ovid's account. So we see Ovid being brought up here too, uh, uh, just as we've seen references to Lucan, uh, these, these poets that we met down in uh, Inferno 4 in Limbo. And so, apparently this Aglaros was told by Minerva. And it's so interesting, you see these sorts of injunctions in Greek mythology. Uh, do not open this at this time. Do not look at this. Uh, Cupid and Suke, do not look on the face of your husband. Suke looks on the face of her husband. Orpheus and Eurydice, do not look at Eurydice until you are out of the underworld. Uh, Orpheus exits, but Eurydice still there. Looks back at Eurydice. Well, here, do not open this chest. Well, she opens the chest of Minerva and is concealing a baby, supposedly. I think the baby in this case was uh, uh, the the half snake founder of uh, the half snake founder of Athens, but I could be I could be wrong about that. I'll have to look it up. It's in Metamorphoses two five fifty two to five sixty one. In any case, this is the story. Now that the is cursed by Minerva for having done what she was told not to, opening 
this, uh, this container with a baby in it. This is what's put into play. Mercury has fallen in love with the Glaurus's beautiful sister, Perseus. So he's going to come visit her one night and do as gods and mortals often do in Greco-Roman mythology. Well, Minerva exacts revenge by calling on Envy, who is here personified as a goddess. And sometimes I read the description of her in Ovid. She describes having black teeth and having bile. That means vomit uh, dried all over her chin and her chest. She's described as really disgusting. Somebody you do not want to spend any time with, so probably you don't want to be envious is the idea behind the story. In any case, envy can lead to you losing things rather than gaining things as well. Because Aglaurus is so sick with envy, she tries to keep Mercury from going through the door to see her sister, Hersey. Now, Mercury is a god, and he very much wants to see her sister. He's going to do as he wishes. But this human's in his way, so what is going to happen? Well, when Mercury comes to visit Hersey, Aglaurus attempts to bar the entrance of the god. Good luck, it's Hermes, he's the god of thieves, he's going to get in there, who promptly transforms her into a mute and lifeless statue. So, what are the consequences of envy? Well, envy what others have, lose what one has oneself. Aglaurus is turned to stone, therefore what does she lose? Well, her ability to move, and thus her freedom, her ability to speak. Envy has enslaved her to itself. The idea is that like with those who were so proud and treacherous down in the ice in the four subsections of Circle 9 of the Inferno, is that uh, this sort of thing consumes you. Uh, and, well, that is a... It is as if envy is itself a predatory animal that will ingest you and take your freedom away. Which I think is an excellent way to look at it. In fact, when envy is described in the Old Testament as related to Cain, the, uh, I'm told, because I don't read Hebrew, that the, uh, the word used to describe uh, sin joining itself to uh, Cain is like a predatory cat joining with him. And so the idea is that sin is something that predates on you. Uh, which is, uh, if it is the sort of thing that gets in the way of your rational mind, choosing and directing itself towards actual goals that you've chosen for yourself, that does not seem wrong. Hmm. Cain, well, what are the consequences for him? Well, he's marked forever by God. He loses his brother, loses his way of life, and loses his moral high ground. He loses everything, essentially. And even his story, he was the firstborn. He could have had some story about being some great first human. And yet, what is the story about? How he murdered his brother out of envy. And so, well, there it is. There it is. All right, got to keep moving. Dante now has a moment of self-reflection. Apparently part of reading this Purgatorio is to reflect a little on it. And even while going through it as a pilgrim, Dante reflects on what, he, what it is he sees. And he has a moment here after these first two foundational terraces to think, huh, while I look at these envious, he thinks, he already feels the weight of rocks used to flatten the pride of the penitents on the first terrace. So what he starts to think is, huh, even though I'm looking at others who are paying the price for these vices, although I'm looking at representations of art of those who are cured of these vices and also uh, very much subject to these vices, I want to think about myself and whether I have them. And he says, envy, I'm not so worried about this terrace, which is itself a very proud thing to say, because you're envious of others when you think they have something you don't. And so he thinks he has more talent as a poet than any other poet, so he's not envious of any of them, which is a fairly incredible and very, very proud thing to think. But because he's so proud, he's very nervous about how long he's going to have to do the backbreaking labor in the first circle 
or the first Terrace, because he uh, obviously is a very proud poet. He did write the Divine Comedy, after all, even though he only named it the Commedia. And so, as I said earlier, this suggests that one effect of seeing the vices and the virtues of others, and of them represented in art, is to produce self-reflection in you, so that you can learn from the mistakes and um, the virtues or the, uh, the excellencies of other people. As if one does not observe the flaws of others to judge them, but to judge and improve oneself. Very famous quote. Uh, See not the speck in the eye of your brother without first seeing the moat. That means the log in your own eye. You've got a big old log in your eye, but you see the speck in somebody else's. You've got big old flaws to work on in yourself. Perhaps you should see the flaws of others as being reflected in yourself. And perhaps that is the virtue of being able to see others. That is the idea, at least, behind Dante's pride and self-awareness. All right, let's move on to the raffle. These are Cantos 15 through 17. We're going to talk about the fault in our stars, free will, rational love, and natural love, and meet a wonderful guy named Marco Lombardo, who is on the one hand like a good version of Brunetto Latini, and like a not-yet-as-good version as a character we'll meet uh, uh, amongst the, the, the Martians in Cantos 14 and 18 of Paradiso named Cacciaguina, who is a great-great-grandfather of Dante. All right, darkness of hell. And of a night deprived of every planet. Very dark. Under meager skies as overcast by clouds as sky can be. So on a dark night with a new moon covered by clouds, it would not be as dark as it is here. Had never served to veil my eyes so thickly nor covered them with such rough textured stuff as smoke that wrapped us there in purgatory. So people amongst the wrathful are just as blind as those amongst the envious. And yet they're... The, the source of their blindness is different. My eyes could not endure remaining open so that my faithful, knowledgeable escort drew closer as he offered me his shoulder. Just as a blind man moves behind his guide that he not stray or strike against something that may do damage to or even kill him. So I moved through the bitter, filthy air while listening to my guide who kept repeating, Take care that you are not cut off from me. But I heard voices, and each seemed to pray unto the Lamb of God, who takes away our sins for peace and mercy, Agnus Dei. Agnus Dei is a Latin phrase for Lamb of God. Lamb of God refers to Jesus because the ancient custom was that you would sacrifice a lamb and then eat it. Well, the, the Christian idea is that uh, a human chooses to sacrifice himself so that people can, uh, well, intangibly eat him. That is the idea behind the host on Sunday. You eat the body and drink the blood of Christ. The idea is that he's like a lamb in that way. And that he chose to sacrifice himself, whereas a lamb gets chosen for because it doesn't have a rational intellect, and chose through his actions to give himself as an example for other people. That's an allegorical way uh, to interpret that story. Probably not wrong. In any case, Terrace 3, the wrathful. What's the punishment? Well, we saw parts of it. The wrathful are blinded by acrid smoke, which makes the terrace literally darker than hell. It also smells and is bitter, and the smoke comes off of them. Recall get angry down in, in the Inferno. We saw that they were fighting on the top of the river stick, but also that the sun were bubbling up. And we said that that was probably because they were steaming hot with anger. Well, these people are also steaming hot with anger. They need to cool off and get some perspective. In any case, the smoke coming comes from the steaming or the boiling nature of anger. And so the contrapasso here seems to be that anger blinds one to the light. That means the truth of a situation. Recall Achilleus last year. So angry that he asked 
his mother Thetis to ask Zeus to harm his own side, the Achaeans. What was the direct result of him asking his mother to ask Zeus to hurt the Achaeans? Well, his best friend Patroclus ends up dying for him. So did his anger blind him to the consequences of that which he did and that which he asked for? Absolutely. Does anger shorten and narrow your perspective so that you fail to see the consequences to your actions? Well, here's a question. Have you ever broken something that you needed while you were angry? Or that you then had to replace, like a video game controller? How many people? Anybody want to admit that? A bunch of people raised their hand. Of course. Right. Exactly. When you get angry, you get focused on hurting the thing that caused your anger. But that thing might be your brother. That thing might be your mother. That thing might be your wife. And so, when you get angry, you need to gain perspective so that you do not act out during your anger. I would say that is a big part of secondary education, teaching you all how appropriately to deal with conflicts. Obviously, the childish way is to scream and cry and to lash out physically. That is the most childish way to deal with anger and also the most common way, of course, because it takes sophistication not to act in that way. Uh, but apparently, according to Dante, there are better ways to deal with anger because anger will come to you at some point in your life. It will probably come to you at some point today. It will probably come to you at many points today. And so you better be able to deal with it. All right. So let's meet Marco Lombardo. Apparently a very angry person. We don't know a lot about him in the scholarship, by the way. But he was named Mark. And he was from a place called Lombardy. I was a Lombard and I was called Marco. I knew the world's ways and I loved those goods for which the bows of all men now grow slack. Cool. Marco Lombardi, who was he? He was a courteous and a virtuous man from Lombardy who apparently had some anger issues. He forgave all debts upon his death. What a wonderful thing. Just wait till he dies and then he forgives your debts. And to be indebted is a terrible thing. It is a form of servitude. And so he essentially freed people who were indebted or indentured to him upon his death. Great. Well, he will consider a couple major things for us. Uh, we're going to be with him for a couple cantos here. And we're going to think about one of them today, bless you, and another tomorrow. The first major uh, two concepts we're going to investigate are the relationship between the stars and free will. Just something to say there is obviously Dante existed at a time when astronomy and astrology were one science. That meant that to look at the stars and to measure their distance from Earth, uh, the scientific aspect of astronomy was mixed also with the idea that the stars... Uh, and which star you were born under, there's a whole science that still exists about this called astrology, and you can do natal charts based on that, and uh, based on when you were born and where you were born. In any case, the science of astrology was still mixed with astronomy. Whichever uh, 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 planet or, or celestial object, because also the moon and the sun were considered planets at that time, happened to be in what's called the ascendant during one's birth, would determine the sort of personality that one had. And Dante even, to some extent, does believe this. He believes that he was born under the sign of Gemini, the twins, and that because of that, he has artistic, creative talent, and also a very acute intellect. And there are still people that believe that sort of thing these days. They will check their natal charts. They will buy, for money, published books at Barnes & Noble that talk about astrology. You can go there today and find astrology as a section and several books within it. I would say the, uh, there are common... There are... Mm -hmm. There are new versions of this as well. I'll talk about them in a moment. In any case, what Marco is going to consider is the relationship between stars and their setting of the human's temperament and free will. Do we, are we fully determined? Do we have a choice in this world? Or do we not? And then, you also consider the proper relationship 
between the church and the state, he will use the very famous two sons of Rome argument. In any case, he calls Italy a den of all malice. Again, Italy is full of people making bad choices. And uh, so he agrees with uh, Caboli and Ranieri here. All right, in any case, he says, The world indeed has been stripped utterly of every virtue. Strong, sir. As you said to me, it cloaks and is cloaked by perversity. Apparently these are the smokes of perversity. Some place the cause in heaven. That's the stars. Some below. But I beseech you to define the cause, that seeing it, I may show it to others. Ah, a sigh. So that was Dante. This is Marco. From which his sorrow formed an O was his beginning. Then he answered, Brother, the world is blind, and you come from the world. An interesting inversion there, because obviously Marco is here blind, and they are all blind, because they are filled, or in a place filled with acrid, dark smoke that makes it darker than hell, or a night with no stars and clouds, which is pretty dark. You living ones continue to assign to heaven every cause, as if it were the necessary source of every motion. If this were so, then your free will would be destroyed, and there would be no equity, just see that as justice here, in joy for doing good, in grief for doing evil. The heavens set your appetites in motion, so the heavens do do something, not all your appetites, but even if that were the case, you have received both light on good and evil and free will, which though, this is very interesting, talks about the formation of free will, its struggle and its first wars with the heavens, then conquers all if it has been well nurtured. So it's not a guarantee that you get free will. You have to nurture it well. On greater power and a better nature, you who are free depend. That force engenders the mind in you outside the heavens sway. So if you manage to be nurtured well enough to develop free will, the, re the way that you have that free will is by having a free mind. So if you free your mind from vices, then you are capable to choose for yourself the path you wish to take rather than being subjected to vicious appetites. Makes perfect sense. Thus, if the present world has gone astray, in you is the cause. In you it's to be sought, not in the stars. And now I'll serve as your true execute. Issuing from his hands the soul on which he thought with love before creating it is like a child who weeps and laughs in sport. That soul is simple, unaware. But since the joyful maker gave it motion, it turns willingly to things that bring delight. At first it savors trivial goods. This is uh, talking about children and liking things like candy and bright colors. Uh, just think about a movie theater. Everything is bigger, everything is brighter, and everything is sweet or salty that you can purchase there. That's because it's a place meant for children. It's the same thing in amusement parks. Not a very sophisticated sort of place. Again, big, lights everywhere, uh, bright colors, and salty and sweet colors. Also alcoholic beverages for the parents who get dragged along. And so that's how you start. That's what the vast majority of people like always. And, well, marketing is always for uh, the biggest, uh, biggest total group of people who will buy things. And what's the biggest group always? Young people. Why wouldn't it be older people? Because older people have a bad habit of doing what? Acquiring taste, but also dying. And so, the younger always who are marketed to. And in any case, at first it savors trivial goods. These would beguile the soul, and it runs after them, unless there's guide or rain to rule its love. So apparently, if somebody doesn't teach you what's good in this world, you'll just pursue all these bad things that are common. Well, that's not wrong. Therefore, one needed law to serve as curb. A ruler, too, was needed, one who could discern at least the tower of the true city. The laws exist. But who applies them now? No one. The shepherd who precedes his flock can chew the cud, but does not have cleft 
hoods, cleft hoods, that's what demons have. And thus the people who can see their guy snatch only at the good for which they feel some greed, but feed on that and seek no further. Misrule, you see, has caused the rule to be malevolent. The cause is clearly not celestial forces. They do not corrupt. Alright, that was uh, a fairly straightforward argument, but let's lay it out here. So, the stars. Marco does agree that they, uh, that they can generate motion. It looks like I'm going to run out of time. So we'll go through this actual argument starting tomorrow.